It is a warm Saturday night, June 3rd, 1855. A crowd has gathered outside of Portland Main City Hall, and they have not come to enjoy the weather. They are angry, shouting, cursing. They want their mayor clapped in irons, and they want the rum that they believe he is hiding in the basement of City Hall. Things get rowdy. Stones are thrown, smashing the windows. Eventually, the crowd tries to break down the doors. Then, from inside City Hall, comes a hail of lead. The mayor of Portland has ordered the militia to fire on his citizens. His name was Neil Dow, and they called him the Napoleon of Temperance. He was one of the most remarkable Americans of the 19th century. Think about him what you will. There's very few people like him who came into the world, found it one way, and left the world totally different in one lifetime. And that was Neil Dow. And his great crusade was anti-alcohol. And that sets the stage, unfortunately, for tragedy in the city of Portland. Welcome to Cocktail History. Episode 5, The Napoleon of Temperance. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson. And I'm Joey Brunel, host of the Born Yesterday podcast. In this episode of Cocktail History... Actually, Sam, this is an episode of Born Yesterday. In this joint episode of Cocktail History and Born Yesterday, Joey and I team up to tell the story of Neil Dow, the man who passed America's first prohibition law in 1850 in the state of Maine. An incredibly divisive politician of 19th century New England, Dow was a fist-fighting ex-Quaker. Yes, apparently that can be a thing. His supporters called him the Moral Columbus and the Napoleon of Temperance, while his opponents saw him as a busybody, a polemicist, a xenophobe, a tyrant, and ultimately a murderer. Dow helped build the new Republican Party in New England. Yet, in order to pass his signature law against alcohol, Dow turned to anti-immigrant demagoguery. Dow's legacy continues to stir up emotion and controversy to this day. For example, this anti-Dow song by Portland musician and vlogger Troy Bennett. Oh, here's the So as many of you know, I am from the great state of Maine, and I currently live in the city of Portland, where Neil Dow had his adventures a century and a half ago. I first learned about the story of Neil Dow from my friend Herb Adams, a former state legislator and local historian extraordinaire. We asked Herb to join us today to help us talk about Neil Dow. Herb, how would you like me to introduce you? Um, you... <laughs> Have you achieved the title of city historian yet? No, there's no such position. Uh, actually, I wish there was. Big money. Herb Adams is a, a native of Oxford County, Maine. He now lives in the Parkside neighborhood of Portland, the most densely populated and ethnically diverse square mile of Maine. He's an award-winning author. Uh, he wrote Bold Vision, the story of the parks of Portland, Maine, and is the author and contributor to half a dozen books about Maine. He's at work on a biography of Governor Percival Baxter. He has served in the Maine legislature and the Portland School Board. He appears frequently on the Learning Channel, the History Channel, and the Discovery Channel about the odd corners of Maine and, and, and New England history. He's today an adjunct professor of history and government at SMCC. Thank you so much for, for doing this for us, Herb. We Glad to be really here. really appreciate it. Herb, could you start by kind of setting the stage for what the Portland of Neil Dow's day was like? It would be so different that people who live here today wouldn't really even be able to match up the geography to what it was in 1850. Maine had only been a state about 30 years then. Portland was still the largest municipality in the state. The state capital had just left to go up to Augusta. But it was a very cosmo place. We had uh, ocean steamers, 
to Canada, to the south, across the ocean, to England and to France. Very cosmopolitan, maybe more so than today. And I see the light across the bay. I see the light not far away. And I hear music all around. I'm getting close to Portland town. So mother... But one of the great besetting problems of society in that day, not just here, but most places, was alcohol. It's not the alcohol you and I think of today. This is the rot gut stuff. It was homemade, it was everywhere. It was the socially acceptable escapist drug of the day. So much so that literally, tubs of it would be set out in front of shops with dippers attached by little chains so the passersby could get a slug of rum if they wanted. So, you know, people drank out of those tubs. Kids drank out of those tubs. Horses drank out of those tubs. It was not at all unusual to see drunken horses in the streets of Portland. So, to elaborate on what Herb told us, drinking had been a feature of daily life in America since the very first settlers arrived. Even the stern Puritan fundamentalists of the Massachusetts Bay Colony loved their cider and applejack. In 1609, the new and apparently brewerless colony of Jamestown, Virginia, took out an advertisement in the papers of London. Let me stop you right there. I, I, can I read the order? Yeah. <laughs> By order of His Majesty the King, the colonists of Jamestown, Virginia, have been instructed to establish taverns in this community and elsewhere. Master brewer needed to produce beer and ale for burgeoning new population. In his book Colonial Spirits, Stephen Grassi writes that, quote, A popular wisdom of the colonial age went thus. Americans would spend 50 pounds to erect a church and 400 pounds to erect a tavern. Some say Metheglin bears the name with Perry and Sweet Cider. It'll bring the body out of frame and make the belly wider. Which to prevent, I am content with ale that's good and nappy. And when at last I've had enough, I'll think myself most happy. Indeed, in newly established pioneer towns that lacked a courthouse, such proceedings were often held in the tavern, and whiskey was sometimes used as currency for trading. This led to bar owners having some serious sway in local politics. John Adams would write that. Hit it, Joey. I, I'm going to play John Adams in this movie. The worst effect of all is that these houses are become the nurseries of our legislators. An artful man who has neither sense nor sentiment may, by gaining a little sway among the rabble of the town, multiply taverns and dram shops, and thereby secure the votes of taverner and retailer and all. And the multiplication of taverns will make many, who may have been induced to flip and rum, to vote for any man, whatever. Towards the end of his life, Adams became increasingly opposed to booze. He was not so much against the beer made by his cousin Sam as to quote ardent spirits, aka the hard stuff. Another founding father, Benjamin Rush, Surgeon General to the Continental Army, also advocated against the consumption of hard liquor. Rush was one of the first to document the negative health effects of alcoholism. However, sticking to the theory that the hard stuff was the problem, Rush suggested treating alcoholics by weaning them off of rum with opium-laced wine. I'm sure that turned out very well. In the early 1800s, temperance ideas began to spread, often characterized in both religious and moralistic terms. Alcoholism was seen as a moral failure and a cause of many other failings, from poverty to lasciviousness to domestic violence. The idea that alcoholism was sinful and therefore led to poverty and squalor fit well with both America's ideal of rugged individualism and its Puritan religious tradition. Ending the hard drinking of the poor was seen as a key way to lift them, or rather help them lift themselves, out of poverty. That drinking might be a symptom rather than a cause of poverty did not seem to occur to these early temperance crusaders, and at least for the early temperance advocates, the wine and brandy habits of the upper classes weren't a problem, just the sordid rum quaffing of those sin-soaked layabout paupers. 
And by the way, if this hasn't reminded you of the way drugs are talked about in modern America, maybe it should. There's a patient little woman here below And a little kid that ought to have a show Now I'll give the whiskey up And I'll take a coffee cup with Molly and the baby, don't you know? One of these early temperance supporters was Josiah Dow. He was a Quaker from New Hampshire, but he settled in Portland, Maine. He married Dorcas Allen, who hailed from a prominent Maine Quaker family. And in 1804, they had a son named Neil. Dow always had the crusader's instinct. Quaker, from very crusading Quaker parents... They were well-to-do. The family ran a tannery business, so that you'll know, made good money out of that, and uh, invested wisely, oh, I think, in the city gas works and things like that. So he could have been a man of leisure, but he was a man of action. When he saw this great flaw in society that he felt he could put his finger right on, what's causing it? Booze. What can I do to stop this? Despite Neil's Quaker upbringing, from an early age he seemed full of piss and vinegar. At age seven, he was apparently goaded by some sailors into fighting a monkey in the street, a fight that he won. He had to be pulled off to prevent serious injury to the monkey. In his biography of Dow, Frank Byrne writes that when Dow was a child, Portland still punished criminals with old-school methods like public whipping or putting people in stocks, and he notes that Dow seemed fascinated by the decaying instruments of the old regime. As Dow grew up, his family's tannery became increasingly prosperous, and his family grew in both wealth and community stature. Dow's father was one of the founding members of a group of community leaders who called themselves the Cumberland Society for Suppressing Vice and Immorality, led by one Reverend Ichabod Nichols. Because there were 69 original members, the group was known as the 69ers. In 1815, the 69ers tried to ban the sale of hard liquor by the glass in Portland. The ban did not pass, but it was divisive enough that someone tried to burn down the church where the 69ers met. It was, for young Neil Dow, an early taste of the battles to come. Liquor regulation was, in 19th century America, a deadly serious matter. Dow's mother was also very active in the community, particularly in charity work, and Neil accompanied her on visits to the rougher side of town. On these trips, Neil gained a keen sense of the link between drinking and poverty. As a teenager, Dow's parents sent him to a Quaker school in New Bedford, Massachusetts. He was intelligent and inquisitive and wanted to attend college, but his parents wouldn't let him. They thought that a man's place was at work, and spending too much time idling about and studying ideas was sinful. Returning to Portland to work in the family tannery business, Dow found himself in a bit of a conundrum. Like all young men, he was supposed to join the militia. Colonial America's most important line of defense was its militia, since it kept no standing army. The men of the town were expected to show up once a month with a rifle and do some basic military drills, so that if the Redcoats marched down from Canada, there would be lads in every town ready to give them hell. However, in peacetime, militia musters were generally less boot camp than tailgate. Basically, they would gather, drink, march around a bit, drink some more, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of punch recipes named after militia and light guard companies because you can't have a military training exercise without a punch to go with it. Dow hated the thought of having to participate in the drunken militia musters. He could have claimed a conscientious objector exemption as a Quaker, but he wasn't a pacifist. In fact, he remained as pugnacious as he had been as a child, and trained regularly at the boxing gym, like all of us today. Yeah, apparently they had boxing gyms back then. <laughs> um, so Dow's way out of the militia turned out to be firefighting. Firemen were exempt from militia duty, because someone had to be able to put out the fires if the drunken militiamen blew up the powder magazine. The fire company turned out to be the beginning of Dow's political career, and his crusade for prohibition. A city fire department in those days didn't exist as it does now. There were uh, engine companies 
all around the city that were more like real man social clubs, you know. The pumpers were hand-hauled. Can you imagine it? They would pull one of these enormous tanks to a fire, then pump them full of water through your well or from the ocean if you were close enough, and then pump up the pressure in the tank by, again, man-pumping these things with big levers on the sides of these tanks and then play the water on the fire. Sometimes the companies would show up, rival companies would show up and fight about who got the privilege of putting out your burning house. While your house is burning down, they're fighting about who gets to put it out. These are the toughest kind of guys. Neil Dow joined a engine company, rapidly rose to be chief of that company. Now these are man's men who are running this. He is tough. He's small. He's wiry. He's got muscles like pine knots. He was all his life that way. A very tough and very determined. And he came to the top of a fire company and was respected throughout all the firemen's units in, in Portland. There's a famous story about how after he had convinced them to ban uh, hard liquor at their celebrations, one person nevertheless stood up and offered the toast to Captain Dow, brandy and water, water for the fires and brandy for the firemen. Neil Dow shot to his feet and said, yes, brandy and water, I give you brandy and water. Water extinguishes fire and brandy extinguishes firemen. And everybody laughed and applauded. That's the sort of rough back and forth they liked. After a serious fire in 1826, he helped draft an ordinance to better organize the fire engine companies. He also worked for the national re-election campaign of John Quincy Adams, giving speeches around town. Adams lost, but Dow got his taste of the political arena, and he liked it. Nationally, the temperance movement was gaining strength, and Boston was its epicenter. Reverend Lyman Beecher, a prominent Presbyterian minister and father of Uncle Tom's cabin author Harriet Beecher Stowe, founded the American Temperance Society in Boston in 1826. Its members pledged to abstain from hard alcohol and preach temperance far and wide. In 1827, Dow heard Beecher speak in Boston and returned to Portland inspired. Having succeeded in getting his fire engine company to stop serving spirits at their festivities, he turned to his employees. Workmen expected that at 10, 2, and 4, the actual church bells of the city would ring, and it was your rum break, it was your social lubricant and your work lubricant. You wouldn't work for a person who didn't give you a good shot every now and again. Alcohol on the job was almost like a fringe benefit. Like today, we want health care. Back then, you expected to get your free rum on your, your rum break. Absolutely true. And uh, at least three times a work day, which started at first light, you know, and went till pretty much it was dark. I can't imagine a lot of useful work got done after the third rum break of the day, but that was the way it was. And you could imbibe on the way to work and on the way home from by stopping at those tubs in front of the general store. Dow resented having to give his employees a daily booze break on his own dime, but if you stopped giving this perk to your workers, they might be inclined to look for work elsewhere. So Dow formed a trade organization with other small factory owners. Factory people at the time were known as master mechanics, so the organization he founded was called the Maine Charitable Mechanics Association, a group that still exists to this day. In 1829, the Maine Charitable Mechanics voted as a group to stop providing free rum to their employees. So now, if you were a factory worker in Portland and you wanted free booze on the job, you were out of luck. In the 1830s, the national temperance movement underwent a schism between those who thought that drinking in moderation was A-OK -okay, and those who thought that even a drop of alcohol was sinful and dangerous. Dow fell decidedly into the latter camp and helped found the Maine Temperance Union, a new group that opposed all drinking, period. Rhetoric against alcohol became more and more extreme. From pulpits across the nation, preachers called drinking damnable and a mortal sin, while propaganda pamphlets spoke of the real and made-up maladies that drinking could cause. Having too much alcohol in your system, it was said, could even cause spontaneous combustion. It was basically reefer madness, but for alcohol. You may 
it tell the liquor seller not to crawl. He will never get a nickel from me now. He may keep his poison trash, and I'll put away my cash for Molly and the baby, don't you know? Dow also began to move towards support for government prohibition of alcohol, which was still something of an extreme position even within the temperance movement. He also began giving fiery speeches against alcohol. Dow was a natural politician, remember, so he knew to play to his audience. When giving speeches to common folk, he often railed against rum sellers and the wealthy hypocrites who supported temperance for all of the working people, but still drank themselves. And then when he would talk to wealthy audiences, it would be all about uh, all these poor people who were drunk all the time, and it was the reason that they were poor. Dow's efforts to ban alcohol were, shocker, making him enemies. In 1843, his opponents tried to get him removed from his post as fire chief, alleging that he intentionally allowed a liquor store to burn down. Physical threats were also becoming something that Dow had to deal with on a regular basis. The fighting ex-Quaker was more than willing to take on anyone who challenged him. When Neil Dow started his crusade, uh, Portland had no streetlights either. Uh, So he took to walking home after making anti-alcohol speeches in the middle of the street at night so that he couldn't get jumped from the shadows. In his memoirs, he says, I do not recall ever having been assaulted by the same person twice. I think he even, he carried a pistol for a while, but at one point there was an accidental discharge and it almost shot his daughter. And so he stopped carrying that. Um, But he was not afraid to fight physically. And he also often verbally assaulted his opponents in a pretty personal manner, his political opponents. He was very sharp-tongued and quick-fisted. He was actually read out of the local order of Quakers for that, not that they disagreed with his theories about liquor necessarily. If you stand in his mansion in Portland, you can actually see the very banister across which he threw his coat with a pistol concealed in the pocket, and it discharged, as you say, over the head of his daughter, who was coming down the stairs at the time. You can still see this place. After that, he just didn't carry a pistol anymore, doubled up on the fists. By 1845, the Maine Temperance Union voted to officially support legal prohibition in Maine, and they put Neil Dow in charge of convincing the Maine legislature to pass it. His first attempt went nowhere fast. Dow's act for the suppression of drinking houses and tippling shops was voted down in the Maine legislature without debate. Enraged by the failure, Dow turned his rhetorical guns on Portland representative Phineas Barnes. Barnes was a moderate temperance supporter, but was unwilling to support full-fledged prohibition. To punish old Phineas for failing to support his law, Dow and his temperance union ran an independent temperance candidate against him. In the election, Barnes, who was a member of the Whig Party, faced a Democrat and the temperance candidate. At the time, in order to win, you needed 50% of the vote. If no candidate got 50% of the vote, well, then you just kept voting until somebody did get 50% of the vote, week after week after week. So at first, the temperance candidate won only 15%, but that was enough to take enough votes from everyone else that nobody passed the 50% threshold. Eventually, Barnes did get 50% of the vote and the temperance candidate lost, but this demonstrated the power of the temperance movement. They commanded only a fraction of the vote, but their supporters were single-issue voters willing to cross traditional party lines of Democrat and Whig to vote for whoever was the strongest supporter of temperance. They had the power to swing a close election. That winter, Dow toured rural Maine, which was all of Maine at the time, in a sleigh, drumming up support for prohibition and preaching against the evil rum sellers. In June of 1846, the Temperance Union delivered a petition to the Maine legislature with 40,000 signatures in support of prohibition. This intimidated the legislature just a little bit, and they passed the Prohibitory Law of 1846, Maine's first attempt at prohibition. The law banned sales of liquor by the glass, theoretically making bars illegal. 
But the grog shops quickly turned to innovative measures to stay in business, like selling admission tickets that could later be exchanged for booze. The penalties for illegal sale were light, and sellers could only be prosecuted if one of their patrons was willing to testify against them. Portland's Board of Aldermen also feared that prohibition would drive away the sailors that their trade economy depended on, so they basically stopped enforcing the law. A loophole in the prohibitory law allowed licenses to be issued for the sale of alcohol for medical use, and the board issued licenses to sellers who were clearly selling to recreational users. When we say medicinal alcohol, what exactly are we talking about? It's a strange thought. We don't think of it as, as medicine today, but in that day it was medicine, you know. You've seen it in uh, all of the Westerns on TV. A guy gets shot and they give him a, you know, give him a good bolt of brandy, you know. Or they put you out uh, without ether by getting you, uh, you know, a few slugs of alcohol so they can operate on you or saw your leg off. <laughs> uh, so it was medicinal in that sense. It was actually good brandy was considered a medicine. Dow tried to wage a one-man crusade against the liquor dealers. He took to paying witnesses to buy alcohol from the underground grog shops and then report them. Eventually, the fact that witnesses were being paid by Dow was revealed in court. The cases were thrown out. As Dow's complaint was dismissed, a crowd chanted, Go to hell, Neil Dow! Dow was now thoroughly despised by the sizable portion of the population who liked to drink. According to Frank Byrne, quote, Anti-prohibitionists dumped bottles in his yard, dead cats in his carriage, and left objectionable packages on his doorstep. So in 1846, things weren't looking great for Dow's temperance movement. The prohibitory law seemed hardly worth the paper it was written on. But Dow sensed an important shift in the political winds that presented an opportunity. What's the best way to pass a law that restricts people's personal freedom? Make the majority afraid of a scary minority. And in the mid-19th century, that minority was the Irish. Portland's population had now increased to 21,000. That's about three times what it was when Dow was born. And much of the increase came from immigrants, many of them Irish Catholics fleeing the Great Famine, which began in 1845. In 1850, 11% of the population of Portland had been born in Ireland. The new immigrants were often not welcomed by the Protestant British-descended Americans, and drinking was seen as one of the key vices they brought into the country. to demagogue about anything if it would get his audience to support prohibition, was more than happy to warn of the danger of rum-soaked immigrants. The first non-Anglo large wave of immigration was Irish, and very much needed in Portland for their labor, back-breaking common labor that made you seek alcohol and some sort of release, and if the only thing you could afford was the booze, that was it. Catholicism was regarded as a foreign influence. The Pope was supposedly trying to fill America with people who'd listen to the Pope more than they would the president. It's a fear that existed to when John Kennedy ran for president. So you had this anti-Catholicism and anti-immigrant and anti-alcohol fervor that kind of bubbled all in the same pot. Now, Neil Dow did kind of entertain all of those thoughts, certainly anti-alcohol, but the other ones too. And in that, he was not uh, outrageously off the mainstream of his day. He wouldn't be off the mainstream of today, not mentioning any other names now, mind you, but who appeals to the, you know, the fear of the other, the anti, you know, the immigrant, the lesser, the people getting in here somehow who don't deserve it, and they're doing things to us. It's a strong appeal even today. In the early 1840s, the Know Nothing movement emerged. This was a semi-secret society that opposed Catholic immigration, and it quickly spread all over the country. They were basically the alt-right of the 1850s. The Know Nothings, actually called the Star-Spangled Banner Party, or the American Party, because America first, not these immigrants first. 
they got to be known as know-nothings because you'd say, what are you guys up to? And their answer from a loyal member was, I don't know anything about that. I, I know nothing. So they became known as the know-nothings. And they were very powerful. In the 1850s, they actually elected almost the entire Massachusetts state legislature, except for a few people. They elected a huge number of people to the United States Congress. And they ran a former United States president, Millard Fillmore, for president again on the know-nothing ticket. Meanwhile, another issue was increasingly dividing the nation and putting cracks in the two-party system, slavery. Abolitionists were growing powerful in the North, and the issue of whether slavery would be allowed in the new states in the West forced the debate to center stage. The anti-slavery, anti-alcohol, and anti-immigrant movements now had factions in both parties and powerful bases of single-issue voters. And, interestingly enough, there was quite a bit of overlap between these groups. Dow correctly sensed the potential to unite these factions into a coalition. Leading up to the election of 1850, Dow got his temperance supporters to vote for anti-slavery candidates of both parties, in exchange for promises from the abolitionists to support prohibition. Dow also ran for mayor of Portland, because he wanted to be sure that when prohibition did pass, the city government would strictly enforce the law. When the results came in, Dow had been elected mayor of Portland, and his supporters had managed to swing some close elections. You may tell the politicians they may call, I am in for prohibition, head and toe. For at last I've turned my coat, and I'll cast a temperance vote. For Molly and the baby, don't you know? In 1851, Dow presented his bill to the main legislature. Within days, the bill had passed both houses. Dow personally carried it from the Senate chamber to the desk of Governor John Hubbard. Hubbard was not a temperance supporter, in fact he liked a drink, but he felt he needed the temperance voters loyal to Dow, and so, reluctantly, he signed the bill. Prohibition was now the law in Maine. Less than a month later, Dow was pouring confiscated rum out into the streets of Portland. It was so startling to people that it became known as the Maine law, just like you have today Megan's law and laws like that that came about because of a, of a terrible tragedy. So the Maine law is what they referred to it as. The Maine law contained a key innovation that would prove central to the prohibition of the 1850s, national prohibition in the 1920s, and even the war on drugs. It granted law enforcement the right to search for and seize liquor and use it as evidence of intent to sell. Under this new law, sellers could be prosecuted simply for having alcohol, even if their patrons were unwilling to testify against them. This represented a significant expansion in the government power of search and seizure. Dow's bill allowed any three citizens suspecting a place of being a speakeasy the right to obtain a search warrant. There was, however, still an exception for medical use, but municipalities were now encouraged to sell the medical alcohol themselves rather than license potentially unscrupulous dealers. Keep these two provisions in mind, the citizen-issued search warrants and the medical use loophole. They are both going to come back to bite Neil Dow in a few years' time. So, great, Dow has completely banned alcohol from the city of Portland. It's all gone, there's none of it left, right? Of course not. He'd only driven it underground. Speakeasies emerged with secret rooms and contraptions for hiding liquor. Day laborers, many of them Irish, began selling liquor out of their own homes. Dow admitted there remained a few secret grog shops run by foreigners, but overall he claimed his law was a resounding success, and he set about preaching its virtues to the rest of the nation. His newspaper, the Maine Temperance Watchman, spread propaganda about the success of Prohibition in Maine. Only mass communication were newspapers. How do you get your message out? Well. You get in the papers, and you make a strong statement in the papers. Dow was very good at that. He soon attracted the attention of the National Temperance Movement leader, John Marsh. 
Marsh visited Dow in Portland, and he was thoroughly impressed, convinced that Dow's law was the path forward to ending alcohol consumption everywhere that the American flag flew. Marsh's powerful organization spread the gospel of the Maine law across the nation. They printed hundreds of thousands of pamphlets, trumpeting the success of prohibition in Maine. In these pamphlets, Dow was declared the Napoleon of Temperance. That year, Rhode Island passed its own version of the Maine law, and so did Vermont and Massachusetts, and New Brunswick in Canada. The next year, prohibition laws passed in Indiana and Michigan, and the year after that in Connecticut, Ohio, Texas, New York, Pennsylvania, and Iowa. Prohibition was now a national phenomenon, and Neil Dow was its poster child. At a banquet held in Dow's honor in New York, Horace Mann gave him another glowing title, the Moral Columbus. Mann called the Maine law as important as the discovery of the magnetic needle or the invention of printing. At the same banquet, Governor Sam Houston of Texas presented Dow with a large gold medal. Dow made sure to put the medal on public display in Portland, just to troll the haters, so to speak. Yet Dow's national success had done nothing to endear him to the people of Portland, Maine. Quite the opposite, in fact. His police regularly searched trains and ships that passed through Portland for illegal liquor, drawing charges that he was destroying Portland's trade economy. The police also seemed to be particularly zealous in targeting Portland's Irish residents. And Dow's vicious personal attacks against anyone who dared criticize him and his anti-alcohol laws made him a lot of enemies among Portland's elite. And Dow certainly had no trouble making enemies. At one point, Dow thought his own cousin, John Neal, who was also a political figure in Portland, wasn't supporting the Maine law strongly enough, and so he published an anonymous newspaper article dishing a whole bunch of dirt on John Neal and his friends and family. Yikes. In 1852, Portland had another mayoral election, and the Democrats nominated Albion Paris, a former governor and congressman, to run against Dow. Paris promised to uphold the main law, but not be so extreme about it. Despite a snowstorm, because why would that keep Portlanders away from voting, turnout was nearly twice as high as Dow's first election. Neil Dow got 1,496 votes, but Paris got 1,900 votes. Dow took his loss in stride, his spirits cushioned by the fact that the main law was taking the nation by storm. The loss he blamed on big money and voter fraud. He claimed that Boston rum sellers had spent $17,000, then an unspeakable amount of money for a campaign, to defeat him, and Democrats brought in large numbers of Irish from out of state to ensure their candidate's victory. As the nation drew closer and closer to civil war, the Democrat and Whig parties were falling apart over the issue of slavery, and anti-Irish xenophobia had reached fever pitch. In 1854, the abolitionist, prohibitionist, and know-nothing coalition swept the Maine State House. Neil Dow was now considered a kingmaker in Maine politics. Similar alliances swept state legislatures across the North, and they became the blueprint for the new Republican Party. The Republican Party was just coming into being 1854-1856, and under its umbrella, it swept in a lot of these people. You had former Democrats, you had know-nothings, you had anti-immigrants, you had people who were anti-Masonic. It's hard for us to get our hands around this. But the Masonic order, Masons, which still exist today, were considered to be a secret society out to subvert the government of the United States and democracy. And there were anti-Masonic candidates, too. Dow was once again very good at pulling all these frayed, doubtful, suspicious, wanting to protect themselves and what they had, and outright reformers who wanted to make America better. And he put them all together. Dow's name was even floated as a possible Republican vice presidential candidate. Had it not been for the shots fired on a fateful June day in 1855, Dow could conceivably have shared a ticket with Abraham Lincoln. In 1855, Dow ran for mayor again, and he really doubled down on the anti-immigrant rhetoric. The campaign of 1855 was ugly. 
Dow described the Irish as, quote, cattle, and his temperance newspaper wrote that the Irish, quote, come here with all their vicious and groveling habits uncontrolled. They have no previous training in the habits of temperance, and they die out before they are reclaimed. Yeah, that sounds pretty ugly. Dow got some help from his ascendant allies in the state legislature, who passed a law requiring foreign-born citizens to present their naturalization papers three months before an election in order to register to vote. It was basically 19th century voter ID laws. On April 3, 1855, Dow was once again elected mayor of Portland, but he won only by 47 votes out of more than 3,700 cast. But Dow didn't care how close the election was or how polarizing he personally was. He immediately set about going after the liquor dealers harder than ever. His cronies in the state capitol passed a new law at his behest, known as the Intensified Main Law, which made penalties for alcohol sale even harsher than they were before. With the help of a sympathetic judge, he established a new court to deal with the rum sellers, and his police force hauled in drunkards and intimidated them into giving up information against the booze dealers. It was just two months after his election that Dow, cloaked in hubris, made the mistake that would set in motion the destruction of his political career. It all began with the relatively innocuous issue of finding a way to sell alcohol legally for medicinal use. Dow set up an agency that would sell medical alcohol out of City Hall, bringing in revenue and allowing him to keep an eye on where it was going. This was, if done properly, all perfectly legal under the main law. Dow got the Board of Aldermen to approve the arrangement, then ordered $1,600 worth of liquor without bothering to wait for the necessary paperwork to purchase it in the name of the city. So, on May 31st, 1855, $1,600 worth of liquor showed up at City Hall with a bill with Neil Dow's name on it. So Dow signed the order to import medicinal alcohol into Portland and had it uh, stored in the basement of the City Hall, whose picture we were looking at, which would be a little bit below ground level, but mostly on, on it, in the basement of that building. Two big doors in the City Hall then. One faced onto what we call Middle Street, and one faced onto what we call Congress Street, toward the uh, Portland Public Library side, let's say, today. You step back and look at this and say, what was he thinking? On the other hand, we don't always think our own lives through either, you know. Neil Dow was full of self-assurance. The city medicinal liquor supply was running low. He should have had a commission established that could have signed for it and ordered it, but he ordered it over uh, under his own signature. And that, until it was turned over to the city, his enemies said, you've broken the law. You've bought alcohol, and it's illegal to transport or transfer alcohol. So if you're going to transfer its ownership to the city, you've broken your own law again. Now, these may look like hair-splitting uh, uh, accusations, on the other hand, if you're after Neil Dow, you split any hairs you can. That night, the aldermen of Portland met to approve the new city-run liquor store. At the meeting, an anti-prohibition alderman named Joseph Ring realized that this was an opportunity to give Dow a taste of his own medicine. He leaked word of the liquor out to several anti-Dow newspapers. The word leaked out that Dow, on his signature, had imported liquor. Now, his many enemies didn't have to any trouble whipping up a frenzy against him for that. Where do you go get those people? You go to the docks, you go to work sites, you go to the Irish, his uh, natural enemies. And they uh, gathered in a mob to get the liquor from the basement of City Hall. This happened on the 2nd of June, 1855, a hot day. In the late afternoon, leaflets had been printed and distributed all around the city about Mayor Neil Dow, saying he was sneaking liquor into Portland, probably for his personal profit. It was said on these leaflets, let the lash that he has applied to others' backs be applied to his own. Soon, three Dow opponents, including a distiller he had put out of business, showed up in court, demanding a warrant for the seizure of the liquor in City Hall. The judge was an ally of Dow, but it didn't matter because of how Dow's own main law was written. 
According to the law, if three citizens said there was liquor being sold illegally, a judge had to issue a warrant. Portland police stalled a bit on executing the warrant against their own boss, waiting several hours before officially seizing the liquor. Meanwhile, Dow got a majority of the aldermen to grant him the approvals he needed to have the city purchase the alcohol and legalize its presence. He had planned to then head down to the courtroom to face the charges, where hopefully his ally on the bench would put an end to this foolishness. But the angry citizens of Portland had something else in mind. So as dusk gathered, you had several hundred people gathered in Monument Square, knowing that there's liquor in that basement. As it grew clear that Dow was not going to be arrested, and the liquor he purchased would not be removed from City Hall, the crowd grew increasingly riled up. It seemed that Dow was the one person able to escape punishment from his own law, and the angry crowd was having none of it. Now, Neil Dow did have control as mayor of the city constabulary, but there weren't many policemen. So he called out uh, several of the companies of the city militia and had them assemble at City Hall to keep the liquor out of the hands of the crowd. As it got darker and darker, the crowd got bolder and bolder. No streetlights in Portland. Torchlight is what they're acting under. You can just see the, you know, angry crowd because crowds have mentalities. And this one did, uh, you know, under the fluttering torchlights and all of that, Neil Dow, a man they hate, clattering up and down the stairs in City Hall, arming the troops from the city armory, which was on the top floor. And uh, so he armed them and made sure they were seen marching about, coming down the stairs. When the first militia company, the late guards, arrived at 10 p.m., Dow had them form ranks in front of City Hall, rifles facing the crowd. It was an aggressive posture to say the least. The ex-Quaker did not show the least interest in trying to calm things down. He shouted a demand for the crowd to disperse. The reply he got was curses and a shower of stones. At that point, he ordered the militia to fire. However, the light guard captain hesitated to transmit the order to his men. The captain supposedly asked, quote, Must I fire? For it's hard to shoot our own citizens. Thinking better of it, Dow had the light guard retreat into City Hall. Seeing the militia refuse to obey Dow's order, the mob was only emboldened. At this point, another militia company, the Rifle Guards, showed up. Ironically, the Rifle Guards had no ammunition for their rifles, so Dow ordered the Light Guard Company, that had just refused his order to fire, to turn their ammo over to these new guys. Then he led them into the basement to defend the liquor. He positioned a group of policemen and the city militia in the basement of Portland City Hall, where the liquor was, in the dark, more toward the uh, Middle Street doors, and heavily barred all those doors, including the Congress Street doors, which is where the mob was gathering, and getting louder and louder. Neil Dow, uh, you know, is responsible for ramping a lot of this up. At the same time, he didn't have a lot of options as mayor because the mobs were not controllable. They ramped themselves up. And finally, in the darkness, there were several rushes made at the Congress Street door of the uh, City Hall on the first floor level. That would be on the side where today the Portland Public Library is. So you get, you know, some thousand angry, fist-waving, torch-bearing, pitchfork-heaving people crashing up against the doors. You don't know how long this is going to hold. Dow in the basement, both brave and foolhardy, standing there with his men, ordered them to prepare and to level their weapons. Supposedly, Dow told them, quote, I want every man among you to mark your man. We'll see whether mob law shall rule here, or whether your chief magistrate shall. And when the mob almost came crashing in through the door again on the uh, library side, and apparently smashed the windows, and arms were coming through the broken windows to try to haul up the bars of the door, Neil Dow stepped aside and ordered the militia to fire. 
Bullets. Real bullets just came shattered through the door and out through the openings. Then Dow ordered the militia to advance upon the crowd with fixed bayonets and clear the square. According to Dow's enemies, many of whom who owned and ran newspapers at the time, not people you want mad at you, indicated that innocent people were both hit by the bullets and stabbed by the bayonets as they were clearing the place out. One person did lay dead. His name was John Robbins. He was a very young sailor from Deer Isle, Maine. He was to be uh, married in a few days to a young woman in Portland. He lay dead in the pavement. All around are, you know, smashed bricks and, and broken paving stones, litter of clothes and clubs and that sort of thing. And in the torchlight, the uh, militia continued to march out into uh, clear the square. Many people apparently were uh, poked by the bayonets. Others uh, had their hat blown off by bullets. John A. Poor, the man who built Commercial Street, an avid hater of Dow, but he was editor of a newspaper that had its offices right off Monument Square. He stepped out of his office just as the riot broke out, and his hat was blown off by a bullet. If it had been a six inches low, he wouldn't have Commercial Street today. So, you know, you have the people who own the press just absolutely enraged. You can just imagine the, the, what the mess it was. Neil Dow then ordered crackers and cheese and cold water, of course, for everybody and gathered the troops in the basement of City Hall and they had refreshments. Allegedly, he was told that there was one dead man out there. Allegedly, he replied, is the body Irish? We can't confirm that. It appeared in his uh, dire enemy's newspapers. The man whose hat was blown off, John A. Poor, the next day hung in front of his print shop and editorial uh, offices in Monument Square, a huge banner that said, Murder. The Portland Rum Riot, the news of it makes the New York Times, the Boston Papers, makes papers in France and England. I mean, the mayor of a city has fired on his own citizens over the issue of rum. Well, the mob was breaking windows as the mayhem it began. Dow called for Robert's rifles and he told him, mark your man. Three times he gave the orders to send the rifle balls. He'd rather see him dead than let him dump his alcohol. When the smoke had cleared away and the rifles looked around, seven men were John Robbins' funeral procession drew 300 people to the streets of Portland, led by sailors carrying a flag at half-mast. On June 5th, with the courthouse under heavy guard, Neil Dow stood trial on the charge that he had purchased liquor illegally. trial is held in Portland City Hall, on the big hall right above the rooms where the liquor had been stored and where the firing had taken place. It's what you and I today would call a show trial. Uh, it was as meant as much for the show as for the verdict. Neil Dow uh, was prosecuted by the former Attorney General of the United States of America, Nathan Clifford who's within a few years of being appointed to the United States Supreme Court, a diehard Democrat who has hated Dow and who Dow hates. Neil Dow is defended by the United States Senator from Maine, William Pitt Fessenden, a very loyal anti-slavery Republican who personally doesn't like Dow much, but feels he better have a good defense. It's a show trial. It really is. Dow is actually acquitted of violating his own liquor laws, but you can imagine the cost to the man and his reputation. It nearly kills the young Republican Party in Maine, and Dow's, in essence, his elected political career is over.
the circumstances, I mean, this, this sucks in all the big names in Maine politics at the time. You've got to take a position on this one way or the other. Republicans in general defend Dow, some of them very reluctantly. Democrats are all over him very eagerly. That year, the Democrats' nominee for governor, Samuel Wells, worked to explicitly tie Republican Governor Andrew Morrill to Dow. His campaign said that, quote, a vote for Morrill is a vote for Neil Dow, and a justification of all his illegal, tyrannical, and murderous acts. Wells defeated Morrill, and Democrats swept the state house. Dow had gone from being a kingmaker to a liability. A Republican newspaper suggested the need to purge the party of, quote, men of isms, clearly referring to Dow. In 1856, he declined to run for re-election. That was the same year that the Maine law was repealed by the state legislature, and municipalities could once again authorize liquor licenses, albeit with some restrictions. The Maine Republican Party removed prohibition from their platform, making opposition to slavery their sole moral issue. Meanwhile, in many states that had passed their own Maine laws, courts struck down prohibition as unconstitutional. With the legal status of temperance in jeopardy and its champion disgraced, no new states passed Maine laws. Prohibition in America was, at least for now, dead. Never one to give up, Dow traveled to England trying to bring the gospel of prohibition across the pond, but the hard-drinking Brits were more than a little skeptical. He returned to Maine and tried to revive his political career, only to get caught up in some shady financial dealings that sank his reputation even lower. Then came the election of Abraham Lincoln, and the Civil War began. Neil Dow, you could not stop this man. When the Civil War came, now this is within everybody's memory of the rum riots, you know, about five years after, a little more than five, but not much. In those days, political figures could raise regiments. That is, they would raise a regiment of a thousand people. And in the early years of the war, many political figures did this. Usually, therefore, they would be appointed the colonel of that regiment. Now, Dow raised uh, what was the 13th Maine Regiment, the 13th Regiment of a 1,000 men to be raised in Maine. And it was known, though he didn't like it, as the Sunday School Regiment. You know, if your mother didn't want you to go off to war, she'd let you go with General Dow because you knew there'd be no drinking in his regiment, there'd be no swearing. Uh, Neil Dow did every morning gather the men to sing hymns and put them all to bed at nine o'clock and all of that. He had one hour under arms, and that was in the Battle of Port Hudson, Louisiana, when his regiment was uh, ordered to take a certain Confederate position. Trouble was, to get to it, he had to cross an open field, had a ditch in the middle of it, and the Confederates were on the other side of the open field, up high in a uh, fortification, and had mortars in that fortification and the exact range of the field and the ditch. That meant your men had to slow down when they hit the ditch and climb out. Neil Dow took contrabands, meaning slaves who'd escaped their masters in the South and had come to him for protection. He gave them rails and boards and sent them running ahead of the charge that he ordered for his men. So they, unarmed men, African-Americans first get to the ditch and have to either throw themselves in it or boards over it so that Dow's regiment can charge across it. Dow led the charge on horseback. Now the charge fails, of course. The night after the failed assault, Dow was captured by Confederate raiders and sent to Libby Prison in Richmond, Virginia. Now Neil Dow had lectured all through the South before the war. And people who'd known him and remembered him and heard him and saw him would come and see him again. He uh, would harangue the fellow officers in Libby Prison about the importance of temperance. I mean, they haven't got even good water to drink, and he's haranguing them against the evils of alcohol. Dow proved a better prisoner than general. He actually helped some of his fellow officers escape and even made DIY invisible ink to send secret messages back to the North. 
Finally, the Confederates released him in exchange for Robert E. Lee's son, who had been captured by the Union. After the war, Dow continued his lonely crusade for prohibition. In 1880, he was even nominated to run for president by the Prohibition Reform Party. Dow's name was on the ballot, but he had no desire to be a spoiler. He did no campaigning and came away with one-tenth of one percent of the popular vote. By the 1890s, Dow was an elder statesman in the temperance movement, which was growing strong again but under very different leadership. The movement for prohibition was now firmly tied to the movement for women's rights, led by Frances Willard of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Dow and Willard became friends, and Willard turned Dow's 90th birthday into a national celebration. Telegrams poured in from all around the world. One of the generals who didn't much care for him during the Civil War was General Sherman, who telegraphed to General Dow a telegram he loved and kept the rest of his life has said, tell General Dow that at his age, an occasional drink will do him good, quote, unquote. In his final years, Dow assembled a 700-page autobiography, written in the third person, which was edited and released by his son after his death. Neil Dow died on October 2nd, 1897, at the incredible age of 93. lived to see his dream of national prohibition become a reality. But two decades later, America would pass the 18th Amendment, thanks to the efforts of groups like Francis Willard's WCTU, as well as another wave of anti-immigrant fervor. That story on a future episode of Cocktail History. Of course, if you want to keep in Neil Dow's Beyond the Grave good graces this weekend, you'd better stick to cold water. But if you've a taste for the demon rum, perhaps you'd like to try the sort of thing they'd serve in the rum holes Dow tried in vain to shut down. Cocktail recipes from the era that have come down to us tend to come from higher class establishments, but here's a simple New England classic that I suspect would have been served in even the shadiest of rum holes, the Black Strap. It's a very simple but quite delicious drink that you can make hot or cold. The main ingredients are just amber rum and molasses. Molasses pairs well with rum because it's what rum is distilled from, just like agave pairs well with tequila or mezcal. For a hot blackstrap, dissolve a tablespoon of blackstrap molasses in two ounces of hot water. For the cold variety, mix the molasses into an ounce of cold water, then fill your glass with cracked ice. Then add two ounces of rum. David Wandrich suggests that for authenticity, you should use Smith & Cross, a wonderfully funky Navy strength rum. For a drink that isn't going to knock you out of your chair, I would suggest one ounce of Smith & Cross and one ounce of something mellower like Plantation 5-Year. Whether hot or cold, the drink is best garnished with fresh nutmeg, although they may not have been able to afford that in the dingy rum holes. If you'd like to make it a grog, just add half an ounce of lime juice. Well, thank you, Joey, for joining me on this episode of Cocktail History. And thank you, Sam, for joining me on this episode of Born Yesterday. Key sources for the episode include The Prophet of Prohibition by Frank L. Byrne, Prohibition 13 Years That Changed America by Edward Baer, and, of course, The Wisdom of Herb Adams. Thank you so much to Herb for coming on the show. 
If you find yourself in Portland this summer, stop by the Neil Dow House, which is open to the public free of charge and is maintained to this day by the Maine Women's Christian Temperance Union. We'd also like to thank Troy Bennett for the use of his song, Here's to Neil Dow, and Steve Romanoff for his song, Portland Town, which was performed by Schooner Fair. Additional music in this episode from Slancha and Kevin McLeod. As always, you can find links to more information, including the Blackstrap recipe, a bibliography, and links to the episode's music at chpodcast.com. Follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash cocktailhistory and Twitter at cocktailhistpod. And if you enjoy Cocktail History, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and comment. It helps others discover the show. Born Yesterday is on an indefinite hiatus at the moment. Sorry, everyone, I am running for Portland City Council. Kind of like Neil Dow, kind of. But if you want to find old episodes of Born Yesterday, you can go to bornyesterdaypodcast.com or you can look up Born Yesterday Podcast on iTunes. And for people who like cocktail history, I highly recommend Born Yesterday. It was uh, one of the things that first got me into history podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Eilertson. And I'm Joey Brunel. And the Cocktail History Podcast theme was composed by Harry Aspinwall. I suspect that one of the few things that Neil Dow and I might agree on is the fact that unlike cocktails, history is something you could never have too much of. That's probably true, Sam. And remember, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. potential political power man <laughs> your, your senses are so thick um invective that's a sam word <laughs> oh, you use so many words <clears throat> um prohibition in america was for the time being a dead letter how about just dead <laughs> yeah, that's fine <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would have some good outtakes. <laughs>